And then you have the blockchain, you sort of like have this movement like Empower and Regen Network and others who are sort of saying, we're going to even take the next step and we're going to try to create infrastructure and enterprises of businesses that together are able by their very nature to generate these massive regenerative outcomes. And that's that's how we're going to, you know, we're going and we're going to quantify that and we're going to monetize that. And it will be sort of a new form of economic growth that is specifically tied to regenerative outcomes instead of extractive outcomes. Welcome to Empower, the first real fire property platform on Cardano that combines emerging technology, sustainable building, and decentralized financial inclusion. My name is Blaine, and I'm the sustainability architect here at Empower. And on this podcast, we'll be sharing conversations based around Empower's three key principles of building, community, and impact. If you want to join our journey and help us build a better future with Empower, then make sure to subscribe, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Empower podcast. My name is Blaine, and today we are joined by Gregory Landaway, founder and CEO of Region Network. Gregory, thanks for coming on the show. Blaine, it's great to be here. Yeah, excited for some cross ecosystem. <laughs> and thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so uh, I think you will be one of the first or all the first um, guests that is from a different blockchain ecosystem, so Cosmos. Um, we've had guests outside of blockchain completely, so that's a completely different ecosystem. But um yeah, it, it's it's cool getting opinions uh, and learning from people and projects from different spaces. I mean, um, in in Cosmos and Ethereum, there's a term called refi, so regenerative finance, um, which is quite popular there. I think it's not so common in Cardano. We have a a similar version of that called RealFi, which we kind of coin with Empower as, as well. We use that quite a bit. Um, a lot of similarities. Effectively, it's just kind of DeFi linked with real world assets, real world impact, mm-hmm. um, but kind of a lot of overlap, hence why uh, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of bring you on and learn about what you do, some of your strategy and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, so there's a few topics I want to kind of talk about, carbon credits being one, what that is, that obviously ties in with, with what you guys do, um, the refi movement, which we just touched on. Uh, I also wanted, we mentioned this prior to recording, um, maximalism and um, whether that mindset is productive or counterproductive to kind of accelerating um, environmental, social uh, outcomes, positive outcomes. Yeah. Because um, I think that's quite relevant at the moment, and we're seeing a lot of progress in that in that space. But I love to kind of tap into your brain and get your opinions. But to start us off, can you please introduce the podcast a bit to to who you are, what you do? And maybe how you got involved in the space because I, I think you've been in here for a while. Yeah, sure, definitely. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm Gregory. I'm one of the co-founders of Region Network, which is a domain-specific um, application-specific blockchain. And we can get into that in terms of like architecture and ha- sort of like the Cosmos flavor of what we're doing. Um, focused on originating ecological assets. So so there's a whole bundle of of function that's necessary 
to be able to tokenize with integrity an auditable, transparent claim about ecological health somewhere in the world, right? And so some of that is scientific and data management, anchoring, signing data. Some of it is sort of standards management and uh, methodology registration, right? Because you're getting a group of people together and coordinating the activity of those scientists and land stewards in order to make, you know, in order to sort of like manufacture a digital asset that represents something happening in the real world. In our case, soil health or biodiversity, um, and as you mentioned, carbon credits is really the thing that we've focused most on in our go-to-market strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Region Network is it has a number of different elements. There's a blockchain called Region Ledger um, built with the Cosmos SDK um, in which you know, we don't have this concept of arbitrary smart contracts on region ledger, the blockchain, the state machine, the blockchain itself has the, like particular executable um, code, right? Mm-hmm. That's governed by the whole blockchain, right? So, so you have to go through governance to get, you know, to either to change parameters like economic parameters or to get new executable code put up onto the blockchain in order to like mint, uh, you know, a forward contract instead of just a spot carbon credit, for instance. That's the type of thing that our chain, you know, uh, governs as mm-hmm. a community. Um, let's see. So my background before yeah. sort of diving down the, you know, whatever we want to call it, D-Web, Web3, crypto, blockchain, uh, rabbit All hole. of the above, yeah. Yeah, all of the above uh, was um, it doing agroecology, permaculture, um, supply development mostly. So I worked in agroforestry, specifically with cacao and coffee for, for many years, helping develop smallholder um, cooperatives and link them to uh brands and try and and a lot of that was dealing with transparency and sort of certification of claims and also just sort of like the on the ground action where good intention from a consumer and a brand is actually uh landing in a place and doing real work in a place Mm -hmm. um to improve the ecological health and the social health where that um, supply relationship originates. And so that that I, I had built a business called Terragenesis International, which then in 2017 sort of incubated uh, Regen Network. So sort of coming okay. from the, the myself and, and the other co-founders of Regen Network, we were coming not from a sort of like technology first perspective. We were coming from an ecology uh, and sort of culture first perspective. Um, and yeah, that's you know, in 2017, we started this process of, you know, founding Region Network and and exploring and articulating what the vision would be, sort of from the first principles of ecology and regeneration, which is a very local, context specific process that mm-hmm. involves real people doing real things. And so we were sort of not kind of trying to throw together the next hot. DAP or something like that. We were really trying to reason through what does it look like 
to sort of bring t- this technology in into and maybe even reinvent it if necessary. Gotcha. Right? Because there may be elements of of technology that have been architected from a different set of design principles than the ones that we, you know, fr- from our background and biases would say are necessary in order to sort of like root the technology in the regenerative process instead of sort of trying to change the regenerative process to match the technology. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, It's interesting that you were, because similar to me, uh, I got into blockchain not from a kind of technology perspective, but from a kind of environmental conservation perspective. Uh, the, the, The question that I was trying to answer actually that led me to blockchain was, how what tool exists out there that can help promote transparency and promote accountability within the wildlife ecotourism space and that 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 ultimately led me to to blockchain through the transparency the mutability and that sort of stuff um for you what was that if it wasn't for the tech or maybe well it has to be the tech but what was it about the tech what was the properties of the tech that made you think that this could be a tool that could help with these environmental problems that you're looking to solve. Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's there's a couple of elements that I think are you know we could describe as sort of like the in quotes primitives of the primitives of uh, a blockchain technology that um, are foundations. I think for this sort of regenerative finance, mm-hmm. r- real finance, real world impact. Um, economy that we're is we're you know we're both passionate about so one of those is transfer transparency and sort of the attributes of the durability and availability of data and mm-hmm. you know it's commonly talked about as in terms of immutable i don't use that word because i think it um it's not immutable actually okay <laughs> uh <clears throat> We can make it hard to mute, to, to, to change. Okay, okay. Right? And there's a choice. There's like a social choice as to how hard it is to change. And so I think that's just important to understand. Mm-hmm. But it's like durability and everybody's playing by the same set of rules in terms of the durability and availability of data. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. Like you said, sort of transparency, information parity, uh, these are sort of like, this is like the thought cloud of this, you know, like information asymmetry is such a huge part of why, you know, economies are distorted in favor of um, certain actors so that they kind of like take advantage and extract value from other mm-hmm. actors. Mm-hmm. You know, so I th- part of the theory is if there is knowledge and information symmetry, if everyone has access to the same high quality information that changes the game, right? It changes the competition. Right. Gotcha. And, and that's, that's very important. Um, the other piece, which is maybe embedded in how I'm describing that one is, you know, social governance over, um, you know, rules, sort of like a const- digital constitutionalism or something like that. You, you know, you have a, you have consensus about a, about a blockchain, a state machine, with parameters and rules and it creates sort of like it embeds, we we have the ability to then embed market mechanisms into sort of like a clear governance framework. 
-hmm. And that governance framework could be full spectrum, right? So like a Bitcoin maxi might say our choices on governance are that it's impossible to change anything. And there is no governance because they have particular reasons that they think that that's important. Um, Whereas you may have other people, other sort of like groups of people who say we want real time ability to change anything all the time. Right. And there's going to be trade offs. Right. But the ability for a group of people to come together and make right, and generate and make those decisions. And in fact, to have sort of market competition between different approaches. Right. Um, is really compelling. And so so that gets to the third reason, which is just this sort of theory of a market competition between money systems. Mm hmm. Right. So you, instead of having like a hegemony of fiat currency and I mean, people, I think, in the crypto industry tend to be really poorly educated about how money actually works, which I think is pretty unfortunate. And we tend to sort of like put up a straw man and like it's all central <laughs> banks and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's not actually how money works uh, in, in case people want to know money is by and large, the bulk of money is created in a decentralized way right through lin private bank lending and like the fractional reserve system in which most money is coming into existence through like your mortgage or, or your car loan or you know or big institutional loans and other things and money comes onto the balance sheet as debt and credit and this whole thing happens and we have a giant crazy chaotic money supply and then we have central banks sort of as like an afterthought that are trying to manage things, <laughs> you know, they're, and they're trying to keep up with their rate hikes and all these other things. But that that singular money system, right, that we currently have, that we currently enjoy has like it is true to say it has huge downsides. And it's sort of it's it's in nature. A lot of it's in it's extractive. Um, mm -hmm. And so just the fact that human different groups of humans are getting together and experimenting with new definitions of moneyness, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a meme coin like Doge or it's a full sort of like vertically integrated platform like Cardano that sort of, you know, like ADA does many different things, but it also has some level of moneyness, ETH, mm -hmm. <clears throat> or sort of more application or app chain specific sort of like the cosmos style or stable coins or you know and from stable coins you have everything from rye and die and you know usdc which is basically just an extension of the fiat system into the crypto system so you just that experiment space the overton window that enables us to engage in an active design of what mm -hmm. might make sense for a monetary system and a financial system to you know, to to meet our societal goals, to, mm -hmm. to to offer healthy space for individuals to express themselves, whatever it might be, that's ultimately the most compelling to me, which is just like, hey, we have this new space to to roll our sleeves up and and sort of like engage with to reinvent what money is, how value is tracked and created. And and in my case, you know, I'm very passionate about how to link money creation, value, valuation, and financial systems to ecological health specifically, right? So that 
so that there is a pot, there is sort of like a, I don't know, a cybernetic feedback relationship specifically between ecological health, biosphere integrity, you know, all the way down to sort of like soil health on a farm or water quality in a watershed. That to me should be intrinsically linked to the symbolic representation of our medium of exchange and store of value system that we call money. You know, that should be related. There needs to be a the right relationship there. And what that exactly is, that's the founding question of Regen Network. We're sort of like iterating and experimenting and shipping product and growing community around that central question. Okay, so that central question being this relationship between financial capital and living capital? Exactly. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of things I just want to pick out of what you just said, because there's a few interesting things that I'm also into. Um, one around the idea of blockchain maybe facilitating an increase in um, idea creation and this 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 competition be- with w- between ideas. I think that as a general idea is really important because, and I think blockchain with its decentralized nature lowers the barrier for people to submit ideas to the market and then be judged depending on their merit. I think that in itself is super, super powerful. Um, and you, you kind of talk about that as this experimental space at the moment. Do you think that experimental space is the size of that will increase in size over time? Or will, is that just like a, a byproduct of us being in the early days? And at some point that experimental space will kind of decrease in size so that we can kind of double down on certain ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think there will be sort of this Cambrian explosion of new pieces and it'll consolidate um, through, you know, evolutionary market forces. And then, you know, it'll, at some point it'll happen again, Mm. uh, right? But, but, But at this moment, yeah, I mean, I think we're in the sort of like, crazy explosion moment still it's pretty early you know it's it's unclear what is going to take and why it's going to take um and and there's going to be a mix of luck and and um and solid sort of first principles design and you know the, the the ingredients for success here aren't only merit i would say i think that there there is a little bit more chaos <laughs> than just yeah, sort of like very, purely a merit based yeah actually yeah the, yeah when when you when you when you kind of dive deep it's, it's not just merit it's a lot of other kind of random things thrown into it as well but if I just had to kind of visualize that in some sort of a timeline, it's almost as if we're in this experimental space at the moment where there's a lot of ideas. At some point, we'll, as a society, we'll converge on ideas that provide us value and we'll converge on those ideas when it's kind of provides enough value where it's probably more cost to try and discover new ideas. And that will lead to some sort of plateau probably. And then they'll reach a point where that's not good enough anymore. And we need some sort of systemic change. And then that will lead to this another kind of uh, kind of thing that we're in at the moment where we need something drastically different. All brain power comes together, all these different ideas come about. And then again, we'll converge and then we'll plateau and then we'll probably repeat. Um, yeah, there's bit, a nice model about that. Yeah. I, I I think it's the... Um... Is it called panarchy? Uh, the sure. panarchy theory. Um, yeah, this is it. So this sort of framework of in quotes nature rules. Um, 
and it just sort of has these sets of cycles that you anyway i mean i think that so there are some you know people have noticed that these are both in ecosystems maturing and in markets maturing or even just in a business that there's sort of tend to be these phases so i think that's right i think we're in this sort of this moment in time which is pretty explosive yeah, um, and yeah. it, but it won't last forever it won't be forever just to play on the converging on ideas thing um so from a like one idea that i'm interested in is how so often like in a traditional sense businesses in the past seem to mainly optimize around kind of profit we're seeing a trend towards kind of businesses that are considering kind of environmental social outcomes as well such as you guys such as us and many other pro projects in the blockchain space and also outside of blockchain space but what what is the how how do we how do we incentivize people to i guess converge on the ideas that we think will be beneficial to the planet because obviously if we just tell people you should kind of support this idea because you know it's good for the planet that's not often a compelling idea for a lot of people you almost need to satisfy the the selfish gene which seems to be part of human nature so how how do you how do you think about that challenge of you know designing incentives so that when we converge on ideas those ideas are not just beneficial for humans but beneficial for you know environment the environment as a whole and people outside of just us as well yeah um if that makes so, sense yeah i mean i mean it's a little bit there i mean there's multiple points there so i mean maybe i'll start with um i'm not sure quite where to start i think uh, so maybe I'll try to do two layers of this. Yeah, so one is just sort of referencing back. You mentioned living capital, um, mm -hmm. you know, ba back in the day before founding Region Network, um, some of my permaculture colleagues and I developed, or one of my permaculture colleagues, Ethan Soliviev, and I developed this framework called the Eight Forms of Capital, um, in which, you know, we sort of outlined, we listened to different people who were talking about different forms of value beyond financial value um, and one of the biggest ones is living capital right the, the value of living systems whether that's the health of our bodies or the health of our ecosystems um, and i think you know the interesting thing about living capital is that it's a form of what we identified as nurture capital which is that if you the more that you are nurturing that capital base the more it grows Right. But the more that you ex I, like atomize and extract value from it, the more it dies. Mm -hmm. um, now, financial capital kind of works a little different. Right. Um, th there's just different. It's just a different set of principles, really. And so starting to identify that there are multiple forms of capital and that business and enterprise strategy and sort of societal strategy around different forms of value actually just need to be a little bit different, diverse. It doesn't mean that, you know, like money is bad, right? And money is, mm. again, and money is mutable. Like we can change what money means. It's a social construct. Mm. 
right? So this is, um, I think this is a, this is one element of things, which is how do we start to bring in, as you were mentioning, these other forms of value and capital into how we're determining our success as a business. And you see, like, there's been a whole movement, you know, there's public benefit corporation status in the States and maybe other places. There's um, you know, and, and B Corps and other things where you're, you know, even just a traditional company is saying, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're responsible from a fiduciary perspective, from a legal perspective, mm-hmm. not just for returning like quarterly returns to our shareholders, but we're also responsible for these other elements, right? Which we're going to list and we're going to show how we're going to measure those, that success, right? There's the ESG movement, right? The the environmental, social, and governance movement in the corporate space, which, you know, um, for all of its faults, has really driven the birth of the, or or I would say the um the adoption of voluntary carbon markets, for instance, are really mm-hmm. this is being driven by the ESG movement, which is about um activist shareholders, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, big banks all saying, you know, we're going to rate your performance based on environmental, social and governance metrics, and we won't lend to you and we won't insure you. And we will remove you as as like corporate leadership, if you're not upholding these things, because they're considered to be risk to business, right? Because they're sort of saying like, there's a risk to our money, if you're continually eroding the living capital and the social capital and the cultural capital of the communities that you're doing business with. Right. And so it's, it's kind of a very utilitarian, you know, expansion of fiduciary beyond short-term profit that that's, that's happened. Right. So that's a part of the movement. Right. And then you have the blockchain, you sort of like have this movement like empower and region network and others who are sort of saying, we're going to even take the next step. And we're going to try to create infrastructure and enterprises of businesses that together are able by their very nature to generate these massive regenerative outcomes. And that's that's how we're going to, you know, we're going and we're going to quantify that and we're going to monetize that. And it will be sort of a new form of economic growth that is specifically tied to regenerative outcomes instead of extractive outcomes. So not just, you know, like ESG, I think is like, hey, we're going to hold you accountable to do less harm, basically, Mm -hmm. right? And we're going to quantify the amount of harm you do. And if you do more than some amount, we're going to sort of like punish you. (laughs) That's sort of like ESG. I think the refi movement and, and especially sort of like this birth of programmable money and, and the sort of the blockchain movement is, we're going to socially construct a new form of value that is tied to regenerative outcomes. And we're going to make it, we're going to start integrating onto the balance sheet of stable coins and banks and corporations. And we're going to build a whole new economy that mm. is based on measuring regeneration, regenerative outcomes, Im- positive impact. And that's where value will be sourced from. Interesting. Okay, there's a few things there. So measuring regenerative outcomes is is interesting around 
how we do that, what metrics we focus on, how the metrics change depending on where we are, what we what we're doing. Um, but before we dive into that, um, maybe you're talking about carbon markets. Could you talk about maybe define quickly what carbon credits are, um, how they tie into region network, and and then we can follow it up with some questions after that. Sure. So carbon credits are a flawed but also powerful instrument that is sort of built, generally speaking, so that you're accounting for carbon emissions, right? Mm -hmm. And you're including those carbon emissions on your balance sheet as a liability. Gotcha. Right. And and the 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 cost of that liability is tied to sort of like um global consensus around how quickly we need to reduce emissions and sequester carbon. So there's sort of like a relationship with the 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 environmental cost of those emissions is part of how you value that on the balance sheet. And then, then corporations are in a situation where either they need to reduce their emissions where they can through efficiency, through changing business models and other things, and then where they can't reduce those emissions they need to go buy carbon offsets, which could represent emission reduction at a pace that's faster than the the sort of like rate. So if like a company's way more efficient in upgrading, they might end up with some additional carbon credits, right? Mm-hmm. To to trade or <clears throat> carbon reduction, where you're actually measuring atmospheric carbon being pulled out of the atmosphere and stored for some length of time. Right. So it's, you're actually reducing, not just avoiding um, the emissions that gotcha. are out there. Uh, like, re- I mean, sort of like sequestering carbon mm-hmm. out of the atmosphere. So there's different types of carbon credits. They kind of have different prices in the market. But that's the general arc of things is like a trading system where we're placing value on carbon sequestration and carbon emissions. So negative value on emissions and a positive value on carbon sequestration. Gotcha. And you said that carbon credits has different prices in different markets, but is the amount of carbon um, per carbon credit the same, for example? No, it's a little, it's still variable. It's like still early days. And so, you know, and there's different facets, you know, and and carbon credits get different valued in different ways based on a number of different attributes. There is not yet sort of like a fully standardized like carbon commodity really. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there's attempts to try to create the perfect carbon commodity. Um, there's a whole world there. It's sort of like a whole esoteric world. I think it's quite compl- complicated because not all carbon is the same. Right. It's not. So like you're made of carbon and I'm made of carbon. Mm. What's the value of the carbon in our bodies? <laughs> for in- Just for instance, I, you know, a, a rainforest in Brazil uh, is you know, made of carbon and has certain carbon cycle dynamics and the soil in New South Wales, Australia is carbon. And, the you know, it's like different carbon has different utility in different circumstances as an ecosystem service, for sure, as a potential liability, for sure. And also there's a there's a there's variability in our and in our ability with current science to quantify and verify the carbon outcomes in specific circumstances. So there's some places it's a lot of uncertainty. It's very hard Mm -hmm. to get 
accuracy and precision with a claim. And in other places, it's very easy and you can get a high degree of accuracy and precision. So you sort of have this like grid of different <laughs> different approaches yeah. and carbon types and the market is really still sort of flailing around trying to figure out <laughs> how to appropriately price things. And um, so it's still very early days. So ca carbon markets have existed kind of pre-blockchain. So yeah, what, I mean, what, since, what are the benefits? Back in Kyoto, if, for those of you who may remember, you know, like I remember when yeah. the Kyoto Protocol was adopted, I guess it was in, in the 90s. Um, anyway, yeah, 90s, yeah, yeah, that rings about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and then uh, and th so there was like a first go at carbon markets and some cap and trade. It generally speaking failed for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons, mostly having to do with, I mean, financial speculation on immature <laughs> carbon credits, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was so then there was a lack of trust and other things, and then there's been another generation of carbon markets. So in the eurozone, there's a compliance carbon market cap and trade system. New England and and New York, sort of like the Northeast, has a carbon trading scheme. California has a carbon trading scheme. Um, China just created a new carbon trading scheme. So there are these sort of like state governed carbon systems, and then there's the voluntary carbon system, which um, is much smaller than than the sort of like global compliance markets. Uh, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think the global compliance market, which is growing faster, is somewhere around three fifty to four hundred billion dollars a year of, uh, and and has actually significantly higher price point. And then the the voluntary carbon market, although it's growing super rapidly, is somewhere more like a billion dollars a year for actual, you know, carbon being bought and retired. But I think in terms of volume of exchange, is more like ten billion or something. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are the benef what benefits does blockchain provide when it comes to kind of the carbon credit or carbon markets? Like what how what what unique flavor does blockchain bring which kind of you know increases the utility or value of the carbon market versus you know pre-blockchain? Like could this could we improve this without blockchain or do we need blockchain to improve on certain areas? <clears throat> well, I I will say I do think it can be improved without blockchain, um, mm -hmm. but I think blockchain is transformative in its ability to improve it. Mm -hmm. So there are like definitely incremental steps and, and, and there are other forces besides blockchain, like, you know, a rapidly evolving um, earth observation science based on remote sensing and just much more data about earth. You know, we have, European Space Agency Sentinel-2 data, um, global coverage in 13 bands of multispectral imagery at, mm. you know, 10, uh, 30 meter resolution. No, that's Landsat, 10 meter resolution for free, available to anyone, right? And then you have Planet Labs and other private data providers who have higher resolution. Planet Labs has a daily refresh of the entire globe, <laughs> right? So, so just like, and that's, that's pretty new. That's only, you know, both of those things are, you know, definitely under five years old planets, just like, I think, three years old, European Space Agency's Sentinel-2 is yeah, four or five years old. So that's transforming, like, scientists are just figuring out how to, you know, analyze that and make make sense of that and use that to to transform 
how things like carbon credits are created, right? So that's happening kind of independent of blockchain. Okay, but now where blockchain comes in is, is having sort of data integrity and availability guarantees, right? Uh, enables us to move towards a system in which every token, every every minted carbon credit has, you know, a replicable set of um, actions behind it. So you could anchor the data, you can anchor, you know, any models and algorithms, you can have the bundle of digital signatures from the auditors, all attached there. And that what that does is it reduces the marginal cost of auditing a carbon credit and knowing exactly what it is and who said what about where using what data and what methodology you know the potential is that we can lower that cost to basically just the being able to rerun the computations like so almost a near zero marginal cost you know you're just paying for gas and you're paying for some computations whereas currently the carbon markets the cost of auditing a credit it's like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars because what you're doing is you're you're hiring you know sort of like a white collar auditor person with a master's degree or a phd um, and a team of them really and they're going to go and they're going to like audit the pdf and the, in which all the stuff is there they may need to go do a field visit so one thing you're talking about was measuring impact that's yeah. uh something that i'm thinking about quite a lot of empower and uh, and how we i guess manage that process how we the process of actually measuring how how we capture data what what data do we capture what metric metrics do we track how do you approach that challenge of of measuring impact quantifying impact at, at region network like what's how do you approach that problem yeah i mean so in i'd say sort of like from first principles i'll you know i'll answer that so number one is we don't really believe at the moment in fully automated deterministic like environmental oracles you know like a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about sort of like the oracle feed that you get like the truth from on chain and then under the hood of that you're making all of these complex assumptions whether it's weather data or all of these things so that is not how we approach it right so at the begin that that will come later but i think that that's years away to yeah. do that responsibly right so instead just, quickly, just by that do you mean kind of capturing the data through like internet i don't know what was it internet of things sorts of technologies so physical things that capture data and then automatic i mean that's capture. fine that's fine that's that's all fine i what i mean more is sort of like creating a central oracle that everybody in the marketplace trusts for its information uh, gotcha, gotcha, that gotcha. is like a like a meta aggregator of many different data sources and then is creating sort of like a sort of like a modeled oracle response that says you know this is what happened i don't think we're anywhere close to that at this stage and i think it's sort of dangerous to you know to, to like market that and tell people that that's where things need to go i think that's that's kind of trouble um, you know, instead, what we're creating is essentially sort of like a, a, a data knowledge and trust graph system where we're tracking 
who is saying what about where using what data and what methodology in every single claim and asset, right? But it's sort of decentralized in that way where people are able to set their own standard for eco-crediting, for instance, and then they're able to sort of like anchor and assemble the data that's associated with that. And then we can build a layer of curation and certification on top of that. And then mm -hmm. we can sort of iterate towards these sort of more automated data feeds over time. But right now, there's still a lot of, you know, like from my perspective, you we still are in early enough days that you really need to think of each kind of like claim as a very unique, um, you know, digital asset. And you need to be able to rate its uh, effectiveness in good science kind of on its own. And then, um, yeah, so essentially we've created sort of a, a system for using RDF um, and some some semantic web tools to be able to anchor and sign data related to claims in order to create start building out this sort of knowledge and trust graph, start again, start to layer certification and auditing onto that, and then start to automate significant pieces of that from both directions, both from the auditing sort of like and verification side of things, but also from the sort of primary um, claims perspective where you might just have some, you know, machine learning, you know, algorithm essentially that's taking primary data and spitting out a claim later, right? That, that, and that, that, that those algorithms are actually on-chain entities, right? At, at yeah. some point, they're actually, you know, on-chain entities that can be run and audited and have reputation associated with them. Right. But that's, again, that's like down, that's, we're sort down of taking track. this incremental approach where we can meet the market where it's at, where we can create higher quality assets in the short term, you know, and, and we can build it out, but we can sort of start to iterate and create this sort of trust graph system um, that then really serves for then entrepreneurs and businesses and agencies to sort of like build into that more and more effective uh, yeah. tools. Yeah. Interesting. Makes sense. Um, there's probably not too much long in the podcast. So before we kind of uh, finish up, I, I, I do want to touch on the maximalism thing. What, what are your thoughts on maximalism within the crypto space? Um, do you think it's, from a you know a impact perspective, do you think it's productive or counterproductive? I mean, you know, as it is usually, it's changed a lot over the last little bit. I have to say, it's been good. Um, as it's <laughs> you know, but as we consider sort of crypto maximalism, yeah, I mean, I think it can be pretty toxic. Um, hmm. You know, I sort of always jokingly say I'm a Cosmos Maxi, and I think that that's true. But the interesting thing about being a Cosmos Maxi is it's pretty technology agnostic. So being yeah, so a, you're Cosmos, a Maxi on agnostic uh, on, on interoperable. Cosmos Maximalism <laughs> in its purest form is is the tech stack right for the community that's using it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sort of being rigorous around that and saying, you know, and, and there's like in Cosmos Maximalism, we have these sort of two pillars. One is sovereignty, right? Which is like, can the community sort of like express their needs through the technology that they're using and govern that on their own? 
right? And then interoperability is the other pillar. So can, in doing that, can they freely interoperate with anyone else who may be making other choices, right? Like, can't, can't, like, because you may have a different community who's making different choices, but we want to be able to sort of choose to interoperate and engage with each other, even though we're making different tech choices or governance choices around whatever it is. So we're not locked into sort of this like one chain to rule them all um, and in the darkness bind them kind of uh, <laughs> scenario, which I think that's the root of toxic crypto maximalism is when yeah, a community yeah, gotcha. thinks we are going to be the one and we believe that not only that, but we believe that our existence is dependent on being the one on like generating the maximal network effect that everybody has to do what we're doing. That's the root, I think, of toxic crypto maximalism, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then people, you know, aren't asking the question, you know, what is actually, you know, wh what is the best fit between the circumstance, the use case, the users and the technology? And, um, and that's, of course, and then there's other dimensions. It's not just the technology fit. You know, there's social graphs and access to funding, and there's all these other considerations that people go through in choosing the right tech stack, right? Mm. And that's all important too. You know, if like you've got a beautiful vision and you want to bring it to the world and you happen to meet somebody in, you know, Cardano or, or, or the dot ecosystem or, you know, deep in the Ethereum world and they're like, oh, I love your vision, you know, like here, mm. have some capital. Um, but I want you to build on in my community. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's to, to me, that seems like a pretty legitimate reason to choose. You know, there's always some trade offs, but that's a legitimate reason to choose a specific community because it's supporting the work that needs to get done. So there's that dimension. But then there's the sort of like from first principles, does this technology really empower the the users and the use case in the right way? And sometimes point A and point B are actually Different. at odds. Yeah. And I think that's important to understand. Yeah, I think so for me, I believe in kind of having this free market of, of ideas and having a maximalistic approach. Maximalistic? I don't, it's probably not a word. But taking a maxi approach to that idea of free market of ideas actually kind of reduces the number of ideas in that market. And it, then turns it into a, not a free market, which I think is counterproductive. And then to your six, to your second point, um, like I view all these blockchains as tools and just like tools in a physical sense on a construction site, each tool has a kind of a, a different, a different job. And some tools have similar jobs, but ultimately there's two different tools because there's two unique uh, problems that they're solving. And so that go, kind of goes to your your A and B point and how they sometimes don't align. And I, I think that's another way to look at it. Um, I think many I think people... That's, that's right. I think that's right. I would push back a little bit, I, I guess, because I think actually, you know, I, you know, just to make it a little spicy, I think Let's Cardano, I think Cardano, <laughs> Ethereum, Solana, um, all are making the same mistake. Mm -hmm. And, and and from your tool metaphor, okay. Though these these are communities and protocols, platforms that are trying to build sort of like this fat protocol thesis that captures all of the value 
possible through arbitrary smart contracting and like an integral economy centered around a single token and all of this stuff. They have they're competing along slightly different, you know, they have different a different set of thesis about how they're going to achieve that same thing. But they are trying to create sort of like a Swiss army knife approach where it yeah. is a single sort of like you you sort of like get locked in and and that's the that's maybe it's like a suite of tools or something but still it's like you're sort of like locked into that and you know the tool metaphor i use this a lot right so you need a different tool for different jobs right if i'm going to go clear jungle for an agroforestry project i don't want a swiss army knife hmm. i don't want i don't want a fillet knife either i want a machete right i want a machete that i can hack through some stuff but if i'm whittling a spoon right i don't want a machete it's not going to help me at all right and if i and if i just caught a fish i also don't want a machete and i don't want a little carving knife i want a fillet knife <laughs> so each as you're saying like each each action that we need to take these are tools but the challenge is they're also tools that have like economic and social lobbying systems so you like walk down into the basement or your garage thinking that you're going to you know like whittle a spoon right and but but you walk down there and then everybody's like you know pick the chainsaw up pick the chainsaw up what you really need to do is like chop the tree down not do the spoon the spoon isn't what you need the spoon is the wrong thing so so there's like this interesting that's the you know this marketplace of it you know the reality distortion field that's generated it really does interfere with our ability, I think, as communities and entrepreneurs and, and you know, especially I think this is uh, troublesome with, I guess, vulnerable and marginal communities, right, who may, who, who may not have the time resources or the knowledge resources or the capital resources to, like, sort through this, like, cacophony of reality distortion fields where people are like, what you need is a chainsaw, <laughs> when what really they need is a machete or they really need like a little carving knife or whatever. So anyway. Okay. So external forces coming in and, and, and kind of from the outside telling the people locally, you need this tool. So kind of enforcing tools upon specifically people. Pernicious, I think amongst um, the protocols that are trying to capture value into a central coin as part of their, sort of like their assumption about how to generate network effect and how to sort of like go about this whole process. And, you know, and, and that is for better or worse, that's like, I think Cosmos is really the only ecosystem. Like Adam does not capture value from any of the other projects in any way. And people beat it up all the time because they're like, oh, but how are you going to like, you know, you know, but, but that was a conscious, like don't rent seek principle out of the desire for people to repurpose the technology and you know like the concept of a knife to be able to build a fillet knife or a carving knife or a machete and not be forced to sort of like you know forced into the situation where you're adopting wholesale the whole thing and all of the all of the baggage that might come mm -hmm. with that mm -hmm. and i think and i think that that's you know like disclaimer i think that that's ultimately going to be much, much more competitive in the market of free ideas. And it's what it's going to do is it's going to force the re-articulation, and it already is, of Ethereum 
And I don't know about what's going on in Cardano politics, but you know, polka dot and other things like that cosmos, that sort of like freedom that's available is already forcing that reassessment of like, oh, to compete in this free market, we're going to kind of have to drop the like one chain to rule them all maximalism mm -hmm. because it's not going to fly. And then it's starting to iterate and evolve into like, okay, cool. We're going to do this bit of things and develop this type of a community. So I think it's been a nice counterbalance hmm. and you know, it's um, yeah. So it's like, like it's my like cosmos pitch <laughs> to the Cardano community, I guess, which isn't that everybody should go use cosmos. It's just, it's more that like accepting this understanding, hmm. which is, as you said, there's many tools, they're situationally appropriate, and you don't want to pay rent when you choose to use a different tool than your neighbor to your neighbor for having made the choice. <laughs> mm. Now, I like I like the pitch. I, I'm a I'm a kind of fan of Cosmos as well. Um, and this particular particular topic, we could probably kind of dive deep into, but maybe we could save that for another <laughs> conversation. It, it kind of give it its time. Um, but before we wrap it up with a kind of a couple of closing closing question is there anything you wanted to touch on that i haven't touched on it's been kind of like a bit all, all over the place but yeah no it's been a fun fun uh fun conversation no i feel uh, yeah i feel pretty complete and i mean obviously there's like a whole universe of conversations to have and i'm curious about empower at some point maybe i'll you know have you come over onto my podcast and yeah, we can for sure. chat more about that and um you know yeah it's been it's been great i really appreciate you reaching out blaine yeah, no worries. Um, how can people kind of reach out and connect with you guys at Regen Network? Uh, so um, at Regen underscore network on Twitter, Regen.network uh, has all the, you know, it's webpage, all the socials and all the things. You can get to the Discord, you can get to the Telegram or, you know, the Reddit or whatever, you know, your flavor of engagement <laughs> is. Um, and I'm at Gregory underscore Landaway, L-A-N-D-U-A on Twitter, um, and, uh, have a podcast called the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, um, which I, I have a bunch of new episodes coming out, which is fun. Just voices from the ecosystem and conversations nice. kind of like this one, if people are interested and, uh, yeah, I guess those are the, those are the main avenues for, for folks to, uh, to follow Connect. or engage. Yep. All right. We'll add obviously add those uh, those links below um, and recommend you know people listening to this to to check them out. Um, closing question. Uh, it's a slightly different twist to how I normally we reference real fire, but what excites you the most about the future of refi? Yeah. Uh, what I find most compelling and exciting is a world in which our store of value system and our medium of exchange systems reflect ecological health and um, and by our very interaction with our, you know the economy that we're that the human economy the exhaust of that human economy, the outcome of that human economy is regeneration of ecosystems, regeneration of the planet, that it is not a moral issue or, you know, this quandary of like people being forced to, oh, do I, I have to agonize over my behavior change because I'm destroying 
the environment through my choices. It's actually just sort of becomes embedded and we can move on to other, you know, um, moral, ethical and self-actualizing quests that don't relate to sort of agonizing over, because I think it's totally possible for that to be sort of the way that society intrinsically works. And, you know, we sort of take our place as a keystone species in planetary ecology that's increasing resilience, biodiversity, and ecological health instead of decreasing it through our human, human progress.